This episode is brought to you by DistroKid. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey friends, today's guest is Kevin Martin, lead vocalist for the Seattle, Washington rock band Candlebox. Kevin was kind enough to give us all the inside scoops surrounding the deeply personal subject matter behind their 1994 smash hit single, Far Behind. The track taken from their self-titled 1993 debut album just might be the best feel-good success story so far on Krista Makes a Podcast. I mentioned to Kevin that I respect the fact that Candlebox has always kind of done their own thing. Being from Seattle, they didn't fit that prototype grunge sound. They didn't sound like the jangly pop of the early 90s or anything that was happening a few years earlier in the 80s. They really had a sound all their own. The tours that surrounded their first record couldn't have been any more eclectic either, sharing the stage with such bands as Rush, Metallica, Aerosmith, Living Color, Rollins Band, and The Flaming Lips. Excuse the pun, but it was hard to fit these guys into a box. Speaking of Rush, their drummer Neil Peart shared some really cool insight with Candlebox when they toured together, one of the highest compliments he could have paid the band. For all this and a whole lot more, don't touch that dial. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. All right, Kevin, how's it going? Good man, big fan. Big fan of you as well. And I don't know if you remember. <laughs> I don't know if you remember uh, hanging out. We were we were both pretty. Uh, pretty inebriated <laughs> less than jake played a show with candlebox i want to say it was like an amherst mass it was yeah. like during uh december when we do those radio shows yeah. they would call them the radio station would bring you in it's probably bcn in boston and we played with you guys and uh, ended up uh, talking to you that i think you guys were supporting uh happy pills during that point yeah uh probably and uh so it's so it's been a long time it has been uh it's 20 years now 22 years yeah I do remember I'm, I'm one of those um, unfortunate people that remembers all those amazingly unfortunate instances. And, uh, and we were very drunk and it was a very good time. And uh, it's a pleasure to meet you again 22 years later. Absolutely. You know, I got to say, this is well into over a year now with the podcast. I have done somewhere around probably 70 episodes. And uh, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. This is one of the most interesting songs and you're one of the more interesting bands I've profiled and and I'll, I'll get into that reason it's it's kind of amazing you know you guys were formed in 1990 you're a Seattle band but you you never really fit in with the Seattle sound as it was that whole thing that was happening uh, you almost had everything against you not to get signed um you know you you had uh, a guy kelly gray produced the record kelly has a, a background in metal you know you don't have that uh low baritone growl of of the eddie vetters and the scott wylands and 
here the band gets signed to Maverick Records, which was uh, founded by Madonna in 1992. And you were the first success for the label. You were what 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 put that label on the map with this record. So I kind of want to want to go back a little bit, you know, from from 1990 uh, till the release of the record in July of 93. You know, you guys were, were gigging, I'm assuming, around Seattle. And you had to have seen this whole thing around you uh, happening. Mother Love Bone, Pearl Jam, all these bands, Nirvana, of course. And you were able to have your own. Nobody sounded like Candlebox. There's nobody that sounded sounds like your band. When you go back and you research that time, you had your own sound. Was there any pressure from Maverick or getting in your guys' head, seeing what happened in '91 and '92 with Pearl Jam and all the bands around you to to change your sound, or did you did you stick to your guns? No, we uh, we stuck to our guns. We were, I mean, one of the reasons that we chose Maverick was because of Freddie Demand. Um, his history with Lionel Richie, Madonna, um, of course, Michael Jackson, and his contemporary view of of popular music and allowing us to to produce the record we wanted to produce because we knew what we were doing that's kind of why we we went with maverick you know freddie was just so kind of gracious and supportive even though guy of series one who signed us um you know we were his first signing i think he was uh interning at maverick records uh, at the time to kind of prove himself so and so grateful that that guy actually stumbled upon a, a showcase we were playing in los angeles you know um it just seems like lifetimes ago, um, but that's you know really why we went with Maverick Records is because we want we had produced this demo tape that we recorded Easter Sunday of 1992. Um, you had to have a cassette tape or or some sort of music to provide um, to the venues in Seattle in order to play shows, and we were our bass player wasn't 21 yet, so um, we couldn't play any of the bars. Seattle had very strict liquor laws. Uh, as a matter of fact, they didn't release, you know, you couldn't just open a bar. You actually had to have food if you wanted to have liquor in your bar. It was pretty crazy. So we were playing friends' basements. We were playing all ages venues. We were playing a sports bar that had food because if it had food, then you could go in there and play because that meant the children could be in there. We were considered children uh, being under the age of 21. So, uh, you know, that's kind of what happened to us was, you know, we really had to wait until Barty was 21. So we made this demo tape, which had the original, uh, which the version Far Behind and You that are on the debut album are from the original demo tape. That's kind of, you know, where we knew what we were doing basically with Kelly because he was so good at producing and his mixes were, you know, honestly, second to none on that demo tape. And, and, uh, and you know, really the only thing we had to do for the, for the debut album was match the mastering levels um, from, from those demos. So... I think Freddie recognized that and said, you guys know what you're doing and, and we're going to let you do it. And, um, and Warner brothers being the backing behind Maverick, you know, really just said, okay, well, we'll, we'll do what, what you need us to do, Freddie. And, um, and that's kind of how it all started. And, and we got flown down to Los Angeles to play a showcase in 93 based on um, that demo tape. And, the rest is history, really. Right. And, you know, and Kelly Gray, he comes from uh, the background, you know, uh, with, with the Queensryche guys. And, of course, he's... Myth, on- realms, all that stuff, yeah. Sure, and and Kelly's went on to do to do a ton of a ton of stuff after you guys, but you guys were kind of the the breakout project for him. How did you get involved with him? Why why was why was he the choice of, of producer? Because he he seemed a little left field at that time. Well, cause Scott, our drummer, is he's a few years older than us. I think Scott's about five years older than me. He had been in a band with Kelly or he was in myth and Kelly was in realms and they had played shows together. And because they were both so kind of progressive in their rock and roll, Scott mentioned it 
he thought Kelly would be a, a, a good choice for us as a producer just because of his ears. We had the songs. We knew what we were doing as, as, a, as, a, um, as a musical entity. But we needed a producer to take us to the next level. And Kelly's, uh, you know, just Scott was pretty adamant about Kelly's producing technique, as was Rick Parashar um, at London Bridge Studios. Rick uh, knew Kelly really well. And uh, Rick had, of course, done the, the Pearl Jam 10 album and Temple of the Dog yeah. and, and Alice in Chains and a lot of that stuff. So trusting that Rick kind of trusted Kelly using that Neve console at London Bridge Studios and, and that he knew what he was doing just kind of solidified it for us. Um, and you know, we, we made a second record with Kelly <laughs> that didn't go so well, but, you know, he certainly got the first one right. Right. Well, and you jogged a memory, our uh, sax player. We played New Year's Eve of 1995 in Spokane, Washington, and he was only 20 at the time. And the security escorted him onto the stage from outside and escorted him off after the show because he wasn't 21. <laughs> so there was there was strict laws back uh, back in Washington State in those days. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Again, researching what you guys had done early early as a band here. I just don't even know if the label, maybe you guys knew really where you fit in. I mean, you look who you were touring with. You were part of Rush on their Counterparts tour. You did a Shed tour with Metallica. Of course, you were on main stage at Woodstock 94. You did stints with Living Color, Offspring, Aerosmith, Radiohead, and the Flaming Lips. I mean, you know. And Henry Rollins. And Henry, oh wow, Henry, I, I didn't have that on here. Henry, yeah. Henry Rollins. Yeah. It's interesting. There's not Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice, Stone, Temple Pilots, any of those bands. You know, you, I don't know necessarily if if you were grunge enough to play with them. And it seems like you were you were kind of all all over the place in, in in a respect. To be honest with you, the reason that you know we we got the Metallica tour is that we were selling 170 thousand records a week, and you know we were supposed to be supporting Alice in Chains on that as well as Suicidal Tendency. So it's supposed to be Suicidal, Candlebox, Alice in Chains, and Metallica. And uh, Lane went into rehab, so Alice had to pull out of, of the tour. And at that wow. point, our record was doing so well, we had like the number ten record in the country. Um, you know, Metallica was like, well, that's a strong enough foundation to bring a band like that on tour with us to kind of take that slot of Alice in Chains. So I think that really was kind of why we got that. I don't know if Alice or if, uh, Metallica really liked Candlebox. You know, we always took bands on the road that we liked, but I'm not really sure that um, those guys were listening to our record. I, I think it was kind of management said, hey, you know, you've got an opportunity or a band that's doing a lot of um, movement at radio and, and they're moving a lot of units can probably sell some tickets for you. Not that they needed us to, but that it was a good support for them. Um, the the right. rush thing was more, those guys chose us. They, they really, and we spent 16 weeks with them. So, and they explained it to us, um, you know, uh, in, in not so many words as we chose you because we really like your band. We love what you're doing. We love the progressive elements of it. We love that you're using melody. You're, you're using chord progressions that aren't standard in, in today's music and rock and roll. And uh, and they they really spent a lot of time with us talking to us about our show. Uh, Neil Pert was actually the guy who came up with our set list about seven shows into a tour with them. Uh, <laughs> and he said, listen, I like what you're doing, but I think that these songs would work better, better here because you've got 45 minutes. And, and I uh, he's like, I really think that we should try that out. And when he did that, he was actually right. Um, we played uh, that set list in San Diego and we never changed it from that point on. Wow. That's like the highest compliment in the world to get the uh, approval of Rush. Congratulations. That's yeah. a really, that's a really cool story. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, they, they were, they were the kindest, uh, most amazing musicians as were the guys in living color and, and uh, Metallica. I mean, everybody we've ever toured with, we've been fortunate enough to have a, a you know, a, a kind of a great relationship with on that tour. 
the Flaming Lips guys were a little bit different because, you know, they were they were so alternative and they were so different than anything that was happening musically uh, in, in in even in the '90s, for God's sakes. Um, Barty and I were great fans of theirs and had uh, several of the records you know, prior to the, to the 94 release, we had, uh, in a pre-stream ambulance and a lot of the early stuff that had come out, um, like in the eighties. Um, so when we asked them to go on the road, they're like, well, I'm not really sure why you want us to tour with you. And we're like, well, we really love what you're doing. And, and we want to basically, we want to up our game and you're the type of band that does that. And they blew us away every night. They were far better musicians, um, far better band, um, than we could ever have hoped to have been at that point. And it's really because Wayne, Ronald, Michael, and Steven at that time, which was the lineup, were such a driving force musically on stage that we we really felt that that was something that not only we wanted to watch every night, but we wanted to learn from. And, um, you know, just yeah. like we had learned from uh, Rush, we'd learned from Living Colors, certainly uh, as a phenomenal band, those mus- the musicianship in that band was unreal. And it was really yeah. just about gravitating towards something that was going to teach us something about ourselves and, and give us something to, to take away from at the end of the day for our future as, as musicians. Yeah. And I, and I really mean it, uh, with all sincerity, it just, it goes to show you all these different bands. It's, you didn't sound like anybody, you know, labels and management, they wanted to get you out on a, on a tour that, okay, here's the grunge bands. Here's the punk bands. Here's this tour. And you know, you, you guys definitely had your own sound and just looking at who you tour with it was just, it was really all, all, all over the place, but very cool at the same time, because you had to go out and, and, and try to win over these crowds, which uh, <laughs> a Metallica crowd's not easy to win over. Fuck that Meta- uh, Metallica's crowd. Talk about that Rush's crowd. That's the hard. That was the hardest one. I bet it's all uh, a bunch of dudes with their arms folded, uh, critiquing you the whole time. Yeah, a lot, a lot of this, <laughs> a lot of middle yeah. finger. Fuck you. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I don't it, like your am- I don't like your amp setup. No. <laughs> that's a that, that's that's a great story about rush that was really really cool for you for you to share we're going to dr- jump into the song here in a moment just want to uh, ask you you know you had mentioned that that demo and you said some of the songs like you and far behind were in there how many more songs on that demo ended up on the debut record six total so basically basically those six songs are are, are what got you signed and and then then you started working on on the record yeah um after that we we wrote blossom we wrote arrow uh we wrote he calls home i think about five of the of the of the debut tracks are from after the the demo tape was done and the song we're going to talk about today is of course far behind was that one of the one of the what you felt was a standout track was kelly you know what what did kelly think of it initially when you were going in to cut the record (laughs) um well kelly was like this is a fucking monster you know i mean he was like are you guys how did you write this? And and the funny story is we needed a bass player. Um, in October of 91, our, our guitar player, Pete, fired our bass player, Perry, on Perry's birthday. <laughs> and uh, and we were playing a show in like three or four weeks. And I was like, we need a bass player. I called my friend Sarah from high school. She's like, yeah, Barty. And I was like, I don't know who Barty is. And she's like, yeah, Laura's brother. And I'm like, I, I know Laura. I don't know Barty. And long story short, Barty had been in um, Europe going to uh, for a foreign exchange program in Ireland. So I didn't know him, but I knew his sister very well. And Barty came down to rehearsal and the, the bass line of Far Behind, which is the guitar part now, was the first thing he brought to us. Um, and we turned that into Far Behind. So, um, oh, wow. And, and we, knew it was a, we knew it was a good song. 
Uh, we knew that it was going to be something that um, people are going to gravitate to because it's a ballad and ballads are you know, notorious. I'm a huge journey fan and, and I love, you know, big, <laughs> big smashes, you know I mean? We all love them. And, um, and, uh, so I didn't, I mean, I, I really didn't know at the time I was singing the, the lyric was now Andy, I didn't mean to treat you bad, but I did it anyway. And then in the studio, I changed it and Kelly's like, wait, do you change the lyric? I thought it was now Andy. I said, yeah, I, I don't really know if I want this to be that relevant or that poignant um or obvious to a listener were you referencing andrew wood from mother love bone yeah yeah and um oh wow and andy was andy was a huge inspiration uh, to me and and I, I loved everything he'd done malfunction and you know and love bone and and you know all this kind of crazy solo shit so kelly really said well then let's make sure that this is done right so we spent a lot of time on the tones for the guitars and the drums and the bass for that and then the vocals, I only had the first verse written. I didn't have the chorus written. And um, in the process of recording that song, I think I did vocals at four in the morning. That's when the whole song came to me. So that actually is far behind is one take um, from beginning to end. Uh, and then I did two or three more passes at it. And Kelly ended up using the um, the main, the first vocal we did, which is where I made up the lyrics for um, the chorus and the second verse. Thank you for saying that because I, I when I was researching this, I got to tell you, Kevin, it felt like a first take, like certain parts you were what I call scatting, just off the cuff doing it. It felt so natural. Yeah. And and, and the, having you say that, make I'm just, that that's awesome. Yeah. That's okay. really cool. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that I'm able to do that. I think, Growing up the way I did musically in, in, in my family, music was always around and Otis Redding and a lot of the, the great gospel and um, and rhythm and blues was something that was in the household all the time. And I learned a lot from those types of singers about to let your emotion kind of lead you through the song. I rarely write lyrics uh, prior to uh, recording a track. I, I like to let the, the music dictate to me what it wants to 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 wants me to tell it. That's amazing because how many times have we done demos where we're just kind of singing off the top of our head something and then that ends up being the lyric because yeah. you can't best it. Yeah. You can't beat you can't beat that emotion. I've talked to that so many about that so many times on the show. Uh, I want to jump into this song again. Probably the most interesting song in terms of a hit single that I've previewed on the on the show. You know, this song is four minutes and fifty nine seconds. That's pretty long for a song to get on the radio. And there's nothing here really you can cut out to, to, to take it to radio. Maybe there was a radio edit, I, I don't recall. But the progression of this song never never changes from G, E minor 7, D to a C add 9 chord. It's, it's, it's the whole progression of the song, which you'd think that would get tedious after five minutes, but I didn't realize it until I picked up the guitar and started going through this. I'm like, wow, it's just, it's about the story and about what you're singing here. It really is. The, the, the music's kind of the background, I think, to, to, to what's happening here and, and the tones and, what, and what's going on and how Kelly produced it. And, and we're going to jump in now. Uh, there's an 11-second intro with that, that clean guitar. There's like a chorus effect on it. It's panned off more uh, to the left uh, or to the right, excuse me, with the effect and the left, the, the actual guitar. And, and that panning, it just, it just does something. It, it, it's, it's really cool. Was that something that was done in the mix or, or something you were discussing in the studio with Kelly, if you remember? That was in the mix. Kelly, um, it was funny when we went to mix the, that track, um, you know, for the, for the demo tape, um, it was on an old, uh, 
Robert Lang Studios had this really amazing old Neve console. You know, we had 24 hours in the studio to make this demo tape. That's all we could afford. So, at, you know, six in the morning, uh, when we're finished with everything and, we're, and we're, we're in the mix mode, we're all kind of sitting on faders and, and pan knobs and stuff to, because you have to, that was back before you obviously in, uh, automation and shit. So we had to make that, that pass to tape happen at the moment. And I think that the effect of that, the, the chorus effect on the right, I think was an accident. Um, I, if I recall correctly, that the pan knob on the one fader that was running for, for the effects loop was reversed. Kelly had wanted it to be a separate clean track with the, with the chorus effect on the left so that when the vocal came in, it kind of set, it, it found its way into the middle and then that guitar would open up as the vocal. And that just so happened that it was, I, I, I believe that that's what happened. It was an accident with that, that pan knob. And if you listen to, if you were to get a hold of that cassette tape, you'll find that most of the guitar is, that chorus effect is doing that because we set it there thinking that it was, and I think the speakers may have even been out of phase as well. And that's why it kind of sat in the middle when we listened to it and it sounded right. Then we got the tape and we're like, oh, it's over here. But they were like, it's great. You know, that's a, one of those happy accidents you get. It is super cool, man. And it's a it's a beautiful guitar tone and that and that riff's iconic. It just takes me right back to to the early nineties when yeah. you know as soon as, as soon as you hear it, you you know what track it is. Hey everybody, don't you dare go anywhere. There's lots more Chris to make a podcast after these messages from our sponsors. Looking to elevate your music career? DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that enables musicians to distribute their music to online stores and streaming platforms such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Tidal, and many more. DistroKid collects earnings and payments, sending them to you, the artist. With DistroKid, artists unlock a world of possibilities. From easily paying collaborators with splits to securing your music with DistroLock, DistroKid covers all bases. Plus, you can promote your releases with HyperFollow and create eye-catching visuals with a Spotify Canvas generator, all for free. But that's not all. Introducing the DistroKid app, now available on iOS and Android. Artists can manage their releases, view streaming stats, and withdraw earnings, all from the palm of their hand. And for those looking to perfect their sound, check out Mixia. With its simple interface and customizable mastering options, artists can make their music sound polished and professional within minutes. And don't forget about Instant Share, DistroKid's newest feature. Share large files securely with collaborators, producers, and more, ensuring your music streams at the highest quality. Ready to take your music to the next level? Download the DistroKid app and explore their suite of tools today. Plus, listeners can enjoy 30% off their first year by visiting distrokid.com slash VIP slash demakes. That's distrokid.com slash VIP slash demakes. Hey, do you have an idea for a podcast but don't know where to start? Or do you have an already existing podcast that you want to take to the next level? Well, check out weknowpodcasting.com. From concept development to theme music to editing to logos, weknowpodcasting.com is a one-stop shop for all things pod. Don't hesitate to hit us up. We're very nice. And now, back to the show. We're into verse one in, in 12 seconds. The same intro riff, that guitar uh, riff continues through verse one. Uh, it's still panned off to the left. Now maybe 
through this whole uh, bit of lyrics here and I'm gonna, I'm gonna have you set it up uh, now maybe I didn't mean to treat you bad but I did it anyway and right here the band comes in uh, the bass and drums are playing a simple yet tasty groove given the vocal ample space to tell this story it's nothing flashy they're just kind of kind of laying back there and again that guitar riffs going all all through this whole verse and then maybe some would say your life was sad but you lived it anyway and so maybe your friends, they stand around, they watch you crumble as you falter to the ground. And then someday, your friends, they stand beside you as we're flying. Oh, you were flying oh so high. But then someday, people look at you for what they call their own. They watch you suffer. Yeah, they hear you calling home. And then someday, we could take our time to brush the leaves aside so you can reach us. But you left me far behind. And I have chills reading those now because, Kevin, I never knew what this was about until you told, you mentioned it earlier about, about Andy. Mm. Yeah, well... That's heavy. Thank you. Yeah, it's... Uh... it's What the song is, the song is the heroin. It's the drug that's, that's speaking to Andy. He was, uh, I mean, uh, everyone knows, um, an incredible talent who suffered greatly for his, for his art because of this addiction to heroin. I don't know if anybody's ever written a song from the perspective of you know, of, of an actual substance, um, other than me, I've never spoken to anybody who has, but I, I didn't share that for a long, long time because, uh, I, you know, I, I, you want the song to be what it is for people and love songs yeah. or, you know, breakup songs or whatever, but it really, my, the only way I could address what it was that I felt for, um, for Andy's struggle was by speaking from that perspective. Like in the song, you, I speak from perspective outside looking in at myself, but it, with this song, I wanted to tell that story because heroin is, is, you know, it's the same argument. People say, well, guns don't kill people. People kill people with guns and gun. The gun is the, is the unit as to which the life is taken, but it's in the hands of, of the user. And uh, that's the same with drugs and, and substances, alcohol, abuse, whatever that, that substance is there. If you choose to use it, it's going to be very, very detrimental to you. Um, if you can't handle liquor, you shouldn't drink it. it. It can end up ruining your entire life. Certainly heroin at the time was um, the, the real problem in Seattle. I mean, Lane was struggling with it. Um, There's so many, uh, the girls from L7, uh, Seven Year yeah, Bitch, Kurt. Kurt was struggling with it. Um, a lot of musicians that you guys don't even know about from Seattle that were struggling with it. So I wanted to reach out to him through that process saying, and it's not that I'm, you know, condoning heroin use or anything like that. It just was the only way I felt like I could say, I'm really sorry that you're gone. 
and um, and pay homage to this person that sat down with me in a shoe store when I was 16 years old and talked to me about music and inspired me to be a singer in a rock and roll band, you know, um, and that's what Andy was to me. And I, I, that's why I changed the lyric from now Andy to now maybe so that it, it became a song for everybody. And so when, you know, Andy hears it, hopefully, um, you know, it makes him think about all of us down here that miss him and his talent. Uh, and, and it, there's not a, a show that goes by that when I don't sing that song that I don't think about him every single time, you know, it's, uh, it's just one of those things. Uh, he was just such an incredible talent. And, uh, and, and I missed that, you know, I missed that part of the Seattle music scene that, you know, he was so glamorous and he was so fucking ostentatious and out there. And, you know, that all kind of died when he did. Um, and, and, and that was um, very sad for me, you know, being a 16 year old kid meeting this, uh, you know, kind of musical idol of mine he he was iconic and and every band from that era mentions him as an influence and mentions mentions him in in pretty much the same light light that you have you know again there's no pre-chorus here the simplicity of this song and i say that with the in the highest regard the simplicity of this is amazing a five minute song with the same chord progression that ended up being this massive hit on paper you don't think it would work yeah and it and it did you know it in a minute and 16 seconds we're into the chorus pretty much the, the kind of the last line of verse one you know when you say hey but you left me far behind that's kind of the start of the chorus yeah and on the line now, maybe the big stereo guitars come in, the intro riff drops out, but the band's still going. These big guitars come in and the lyric is now, maybe I didn't mean to treat you oh so bad, but I did it anyway. I'm researching the lyrics, Kevin. I, the first thing I do is I'll go to Google, print them out. You know, or if I have the record, I'll try to read them off the record. And then I just, I really critique and listen, but it makes so much sense that you were free freestyling in the studio. Cause this lyric isn't online. And it almost sounds like, but I did it anyway. And are you, are you saying I'm saying after that? Yeah, but I did it anyway. I'm saying, okay. Yep. But maybe some would say you're left with what you had but you couldn't share the pain. And something interesting happens on the what you had, but you couldn't share the pain. Right there, this octave guitar comes in that's panned over to the right speaker. It's the only time it happens in the song. Yeah. It doesn't happen after the second chorus. No. And it's so cool. It's so cool. How did, how did that happen? Was it ever in the second chorus and Kelly pulled it or you guys decided not to have it? It's such a great part. Pete forgot to play it. <laughs> yeah, he forgot to play it. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's interesting because it, it was such a new song for us in the studio when we were tracking it. And, you know, overdubs, I think really the only overdubs in this are the stereo guitars and the choruses and then the solo, obviously was an overdub but yeah so they pretty much cut this cut this live off the floor together we did we cut this live um and i and i sang what i knew in the song you know for the guys to get through the parts and then it was time for me to do the vocals um but uh yeah so it's that was i just an accident we he kelly forgot to you know we didn't, we didn't have that chart where you go okay that part's done that part's done oh we got that we got to do it again in the second chorus it just 
we forgot about it. And it's probably because it was four in the morning, you know, and, and we were exhausted. And again, for the listeners, this record was recorded analog to tape. It wasn't like now where you could just go, oh, we're just going to copy that part and fly it over here in a computer, you know, yep. with, with Pro Tools and, and some of the other recording software that's out there uh, these days. So I really like how a matter of fact, you were, oh, Pete forgot to play it. <laughs> <laughs> it just it happens, you know, I remember everything. I'm, you know, I'm the amazing. One. No, you're, you're, you're like me. And that's that this is a, this is a great conversation. That's awesome that you remember that because I'm sitting there at the second course. I'm like, where's the octave guitar? Yeah. Where's it at? Cause yeah. it's so cool. But at the same time, there is a certain charm that it's only there the one time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we had a lot of those happy accidents on the, on the record. And, and, uh, if you overthink stuff, that's what happens, you know, when you make your second record and all of a sudden, you know, everything is overthought and, you know, I'm just so grateful that we had this opportunity to record this song the way we did under such pressure, uh, you know, 24 hours in studio because we could only afford $1,850. You know, that's, that's why we got it. I think maybe if we'd had added that on the second course, it would take away from the, that kind of special sparkle that happens there. Was this actually a, a, a re-recording from the original demo, though, we're speaking no, of? That's the original demo. That is incredible. Yeah. That is incredible. We tried to re-record it um, in the studio, and we just couldn't, we, we couldn't capture it. Freddie was like, no, you, you're, you're not capturing it. We'll use the demo. We'll match it. And, and listening back to this, again, there's a certain, there's, and I don't mean this like the performance isn't there, but there's a certain rawness and looseness to this track, especially with your vocal, yeah. that it almost now it, it makes sense that it's a demo. How many people get a five minute demo onto the radio <laughs> and then sell 4 million albums, Kevin? Yeah. It just, it, it, it doesn't happen, bro. <laughs> like... I pinch that's myself awesome. every day. I pinch myself every day, man. Dude, that is awesome. Thank like you. that's like one of the best feel good stories ever on the show. You know, you made a demo and it became uh, because again, you couldn't escape this song in 90. It was really 94. The record was 93, but this song blew up in the spring of 94. Yeah, that it was, was a release. It was it it was it was all over the place. And yeah. uh that is awesome. No, I heard you saying the demo and then you're like, "Well, yeah, we only had 1850 bucks to do the 24 hour." I'm thinking, "Wait a second. I I think he's referring that this is the demo. This is the same the same thing here." So, you squashed my question that I was going to ask that did the song evolve from the demo? No, this this was what it was. Yeah, that that's the, the demo version that was recorded at four o'clock in the morning in Easter Sunday. So cool. Well, after chorus one drops back down, we get into verse number two, this big stereo guitars drop out. And this verse is a little bit shorter than verse one. no 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 couldn't share the pain they watch you suffer and then you you do this like mm-hmm little thing which again i think that it, it was kind of a place placeholder there this was a demo you didn't have another lyric and it was just 
some emotion that you were feeling and, and, and that came onto the track. Now, maybe I could have made my own mistakes, but I live with what I've known. And then maybe we might share in something rare. But won't you look at where we've grown? Won't you look at where we've gone? But then someday comes. Tomorrow holds a sense of what I feel for you in my mind. It's actually fear. Trip. It's Is it fear? Fear for okay. you in my mind, yeah. Tomorrow holds a sense of what I fear for you in my mind. As you trip the final line and that cold day when you lost control. Shame you left my life so soon. You should have told me. Hey. But you left me far behind. And right here before chorus two, I love it. Uh, pan off to the right speaker. There's a guitar slide. Yeah. That comes in right there. Yeah. yeah. And it's just, it just, uh, I don't know, just kind of kind of lifts into chorus two. So again, set up these uh, these lyrics for verse two. Well, that's the same thing. You know, it's it's that um, it's the reality of 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 Andy's existence. And in the first verse, when I close it with the brush you leaves aside so you can reach us, you know, that's obviously visiting the grave and, and you know, cleaning that off so you can look at the, the headstone and whatnot. But the second verse is really just about everybody was watching Andy and everybody was was trying to to help him, you know, and everybody wanted him to succeed so badly. And when Mother Love Bone happened, that, that was like, fucking forget it. That record was so amazing. Those shows were unbelievable. With all of that in front of him, he still could not step away. You know, he could not put it down. He got clean. The band was, you know, they finished the record. They were getting ready to go on the road. And then he has that one instance, you know, where he just choose to pick it up one more time. And I mean, of course, it's happened with a million artists and musicians since, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Well, yeah, and you know, and, well, the, and, and not to interrupt, the, 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 just made me think. The sad part is, is that I don't feel that 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 Andy ever had the legacy that someone like Brad had from Sublime. I mean, yeah. look at what happened. Brad passed away right when that record. He never saw the success of that record, yeah. and they became a household name. And 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 Mother Love Bone is obviously, and Andy is is revered by all these musicians, yourself included. But uh, it, it's a shame that that uh, that the the addiction. Uh, snuffed his life out at such a young age. It's, it's horrible. Yeah. And that's really what that second verse is all about. You know, that, that, that fear you have is you're going to do this and and then you're not going to be able to appreciate what it is you've, you've built. And, and, and that's, you know, it was easy for me, I think on the outside singing this verse because Andy had been gone at that point a year, I think maybe even a year and a half um, and that the cold day when you lost control, um, you know, when, when you just couldn't stay away from the heroin, um, you know, it was, I was just telling his story and, and from that, from, again, from that perspective of the drug, um, I'm here, you're going to use me. I really wish you wouldn't. Um, but, um, you chose this and, you know, let's roll the dice and see what happens. And unfortunately, uh, you know, Andy lost that, uh, lost that role. Was this, it almost feels like this was, uh, therapy for you like this was written in a journal or was this meant to always be a song or was this a poem you had put together or, or, or was this specifically written for far behind uh i it, the minute barty started playing the bass line that first day when he came to try out it it, it made me think of andy <clears throat> we were also rehearsing uh i should mention uh in seattle our, our old rehearsal studio was um was uh, mother love bones old rehearsal studio uh for oh, wow. for a brief period so um we had moved from one room because the the heater wasn't working and of course it's freezing cold in seattle in the winter so they moved us into <laughs> they moved us into this other room for i think about three weeks and that's when barty came down and and um and then um they had told us oh this is mother love bones old room and i was like holy shit like there's some there's a so there's a song in here barty started playing that. i was like i have to write this about andy this is um 
this is a ballad. This is what Andy was so good at. Um, and, and, uh, and I'm going to figure out how to do it. So that's what triggered it was being in that studio. But really when the band started playing a song, when Pete took it home and came back the next day with, uh, with the guitar part being the baseline and taking that, making the guitar part, I was like, okay, this is going to be, this is going to be that song. And you've mentioned a couple of times that, that you refer to this as a ballad until we started speaking today. I never thought of this as a ballad and you're, you're right though. I always thought of this as a, as a, as a slower rock song, but, uh, it, it, it is a ballad in, in sentimentality, sentimentality and, and, and tone after we get out of uh, verse two, that guitar slide happens two minute and 32 second mark. So we're only halfway through the song at this point. We're in chorus <laughs> two. <laughs> There's a lot to go. Yeah. And it's amazing because <laughs> it, it, this song never drags. There's five minute songs, man, that you just, by the third minute, you're like, when is this thing over? You know, <laughs> this song, this song, for some reason, I've always said that great, great songs seem, seem to move quickly. And uh, chorus two is uh, now, maybe I didn't mean to treat you oh so bad, but I did it anyway. Now, maybe some would say you're left with what you had, but you couldn't share the pain. No, no, no. And again, that uh, octave part, Pete didn't play it. It's not there. Uh, <laughs> we're into uh, we're into the guitar solo. Yeah. And the guitar solo is 40 seconds long mm-hmm. from the two minute, 52 second mark to the 332 mark. Stereo guitars uh, get a bit quieter here. It's still the same progression. It's basically the chorus is just continuing, but the stereo guitars are tucked a little bit for this guitar solo. And not many bands were taking 40-second guitar solos back during this time. The guitar solo was kind of uh, uh, out of fashion, so to speak. The 80s were done. You know, bands were kind of kind of shying away from that. And, uh, you know, here you, you gave your guitarist a 40-second 40, 40 spot. Was I'm assuming that, that when you, you, you were live off the floor, was the, was the solo was overdubbed or was it done live? Uh, the, original, the original is the bed track. So the solo was overdubbed. I want to mention, you know, Pete's playing probably the greatest guitar player I've ever played with and, and hands down magic fucking fingers. I mean, um, we all know that guitar players, that, that, that tone is right here. It's not, you can play through any amp you want. You can be Eddie Van Halen playing fucking, you know, some pile of shit amp. It's going to sound like Eddie and that's Pete. Yeah. And <clears throat> when it came time to track this solo, and I love the toggle switch movement in the middle. And I like how it's, it goes from the, the G, E, D, C change to the, just the G and E movement um, yeah. to set up that, that kind of vamping on the, on the E, uh, which is like, the, I guess you'd call it a bridge without a vocal, or there is a vocal in it, but it's, it's, my, it's a readdressed bridge. But um, we were very conscious about this solo. Pete is a huge David Gilmore fan, as I'm, I think am, I am, and most every guitar player and musician in the world is. And we, we spoke pretty in-depthly about how this solo had to take the example of the lyric. It had to express that lyric. It had to express the chorus. It had to finish that story. It had to take that song to that level 
of the helicopter flying around you and you're standing outside of a church in leather pants with no shirt on, you know, and that's the, the slash joke. But we did talk <laughs> about that. We said, we have a song here that who fucking cares how long the solo is. It has to be comfortably numb. It has to be uh, money. It has to be all those great David Gilmore solos, Pete. And, and that, and, and if you, if, if you're listening to what Kelly and I are saying, you know what we're talking about. He's like, exactly. And so it was very off the cuff. Um, the only thing that was um, was chatted about was a was the and that was I sang it to him for what I was looking for to as the lifter for the bridge. So um, yeah, the rest yeah. of that is entirely Pete's magic, and um, and and really happened through conversation. Well, I I gotta I gotta say too, I think that Kelly was integral, Kelly Gray, from where he came from, his yeah. background. Because you know, if you, in no disrespect to the guys I'm going to mention, if you would have had some of the producers at that time, uh, Brendan O'Brien, Bruce Fairbairn, they might have been like, oh, the guitar solo is kind of passe. We got yeah. this. This thing can only be ten seconds long. We can't have it. And the guitar solo is this emotive thing that it's become that you're describing the the pink floyd david gilmore where the the guitar is 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 weeping essentially through through this solo and it, and it was it was needed yeah it's beautiful it's it's uh it's one of my favorite solos uh of all time of, of of any guitar player that's so great of you to say that's awesome oh yeah i mean it's 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 just a magical magical moment in that song and it and it like you said you know it, it expresses that loss you know it expresses that um the meaning of the song it tell it finishes that story and i think that that's what great guitar players do is um is yeah. they take that and they just say you know this is this is just my you know extension of that lyric and and uh and you know pete is one of those guys i mean hands down one of the greatest guitar players uh in the history of rock and roll in my opinion Right on. Well, when we get into the bridge, I love these guitar stabs with the diminished chords. It's so cool. And then you come in with the ah, no, no, ah, no, 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 no. And <laughs> I I wrote these down because you can't find these online. I think you say "Oh myself all alone." No, something like uh, that. Uh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Say, uh, oh no, it's oh no, no, no. I'm saying may 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 may. So it's it's doesn't. I'm really scatting myself into that uh, chorus because <laughs> I I don't have what it is that I'm looking for. Um, so I don't really know if I know what I said there. Um, and I don't know if, if I were to, you know, kind of do what you did and sit there and pick it apart, I could probably put something there. I don't think you could either. And again, I don't know how many songs where someone's like, I don't really know what I sang that ended up being a hit of this magnitude. Again, it's, it's incredible, man. Thank I'm like, you. I'm, I'm happy for you. It's like, it's a, I, I always love a feel good story and it doesn't get much better than this. Uh, the very end you say, see, I know, see, I know. And then you say, but maybe, and on the, but maybe there's this descending guitar run that leads us into the chorus three. awesome I, I love i love that part to set up chorus three i'm calling it chorus three but i'm also cor calling it a verse chorus morph 
And then I put, I really think this is an outro. It is. It's an outro. <laughs> it's an outro chord just because it's just, it's just the movement between the G and the E. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And again, some of the lyrics here, you, you get uh, a lot of streaming, uh, stream of consciousness scatting near the end here. So bear with me on these lyrics. But basically you said, but maybe, uh, said, maybe I didn't mean to treat you oh so bad. Oh, but I did it anyway. No, saying now, maybe never now, baby. Some would say you're left with what you had, but you couldn't share the pain. No, I said, times have changed. Your friends, they come and watch you crumble to the ground. They watch you suffer. Yeah, they hold you down, hold you down. Now, maybe, oh, oh, maybe, and I put a question mark, maybe love? (laughs) It's baby baby brother love. Baby brother love. Ah, okay. Baby brother love. I didn't mean to treat you bad. But you left me far behind on that first line of, but you left me far behind. That descending guitar riff comes back in. That could run. Left me far behind. Left me far behind. And the the uh, descending guitar runs on all three of those lines, and then the song just just ends. Again, it takes you on this five-minute journey. I knew in my heart there had to be a big story behind this lyric because it this song really is not to take anything away from the guitar solo, anything away from the instrumentation or the, the actual song and the, the arrangement of the band, but it's all about the vocal. The vocals pretty much, it doesn't doesn't stop in the song except for the solo. And and the the uh, the subject matter what you're speaking of is, is so heavy it, w- it was warranted for that. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think that the patience of of this song, the patience of the of the lyric, the patience of the melody, the patience of the of the guitar part, the bass line, and the drums, how they all fit together and allow one another to speak um, and to support one another, is what made this song kind of, you know, thirty years later be so special to so many people. As a musician, you can only ever hope that you write a song that people will gravitate to or or that changes somebody's life or or changes yours and affects somebody some way. That's what you hope for. We all as musicians, and of yeah. course you guys know this, you want to write that song that everybody recognizes you for. And um, I get asked all the time, you know, do you, do you get sick of playing? I was like, there's no way in hell I could get sick of playing this song. Because the, like you mentioned, the simplicity of this song is what makes it so listenable and and real to people and it's it's not complex in in its shape it's complex in its story and and how it came together and what that one person uh, that inspired the song meant to you know, a young singer. There was definitely some lightning in a bottle stuff going on with this track, man. Yeah. There, 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 there really was. You guys, you guys hit the, hit the nail on the head here. So, uh, Kevin, I want to, I want to thank you so much for sitting in today. Thanks yeah, for pleasure. sharing, uh, sharing the story and, uh, like you to leave the listeners with anything you have going on. Candlebox has going on. Yeah. <laughs> I know you guys are getting back on, back on the road. I saw your tour days, but you're touring like you're 22 again, man. It's like Ma. August 5th till like end of November. What are you thinking? <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> Obviously. Uh, yeah, we have a new record that comes out September 17th called Wolves, which we've actually been sitting on since January of last year, unfortunately. You know, thank God we're all healthy and and here still. Uh, you know, just looking forward to getting out there and playing some new songs. You know, uh, 
I've been doing, we've done some cover tracks, uh, you know, which I'm so stoked about. We did a lover boy cover song, uh, for a friend. And then we did that. Um, Oh, cool. Uh, Wait, which one we did turn me loose, um, which awesome. I love. And, uh, we've got, I recently did children of the grave with, um, Rudy Sarzo and a couple other really brilliant musicians. Um, my drummer, oh, Robin Diaz. Killer. So yeah, I mean, I, I've been keeping myself busy and looking forward to getting that stuff out there, but really it's just about this new record coming out. Um, and, and getting on the road and, and saying, you know, hi to those faces that I haven't seen in a year and a half, you know, I, I feel you hear you loud and clear there, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Hey everybody. Don't touch that dial. There's plenty more Chris to makes a podcast after a few words from our sponsors. Buying Up All Your Gray, the new EP from PAC, is now streaming on Spotify, Apple Music, and anywhere else you get your tunes. Featuring members of the Juliana Theory, Zayo, and Punchline, PAC brings decades of indie, hardcore, and alternative influence to their debut release. Limited edition screen printed vinyl available now at mindovermatterrecords.com. Hello out there. Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimba the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! We near the end of the show. Here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's band you might not know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Krista Makes a Podcast, all you have to do is submit your song via MP3 only and your bio to band you might not know at gmail.com. This week's featured band is Billboards from Cincinnati, Ohio. They just released their first EP called Maui on all the streaming platforms. And here's a snippet of their song, Run. Chris and Chris. So, Chris, do you think that Far Behind is the biggest demo recording of all time? I I would lean that way. I I can't think of another one that that had this much success. Certainly, there were bands that broke out and had huge hits. You know, for instance, uh, Nirvana's Bleach was recorded for $600 and it sounds like it. Uh, the record ended up selling a couple million after the success of Nevermind, but that's a little different. I mean, this was their breakout single, uh, Candlebox. This song was 
massive. It propelled the the record to sell four million copies. You know, quadruple platinum. That's in, that's insane. Yeah, it's one of the biggest modern rock or alternative, whatever you want to call it, song of the '90s. Is Candlebox far behind? And it was a demo recording. That's insane. Yeah, this is a little bit different scenario than, you know, yeah, Nirvana got huge. So all of their music ever is going to be huge. But this was the breakout hit for Candlebox. Yeah, I mean, you expect a band that gets huge, their back catalog is going to sell and even stuff that's demos and, and, and you know, not not so great recordings. But but yeah, the the fact that the you know, the fact that the label i mean and, and it just it the song sounds great enough for it to be a song that a label would get behind but a lot of times when you get the label suits involved well, we got to change this. this this was only a demo we got to make a real recording of it and kevin even said they tried to re-record it and they just could not capture the magic yeah i went and googled while you guys were having your conversation i was like have any other demos ever become huge hits and I couldn't find anything. But one thing that I did find that was interesting and related right back to your conversation was that Kevin cited listening to Otis Redding growing up and and that being an influence. Well, Otis Redding came up when I searched that because in sitting on the dock of the bay, the part where he whistles was from a demo where he planned to, like that was like a placeholder where he planned to put in that melody and then they just left it in the final version. That's the closest thing I could find. Uh, but I could not find any other demo recordings that became quadruple platinum <laughs> uh, selling hits. Yeah, I, I and, and we've referenced it on the show. I mentioned in the episode with Kevin that, you know, there's there's times where you do a demo and you just say something off the top of your head and that ends up be- becoming the lyric because it was this raw emotion that came out and you couldn't you couldn't best it when you wrote the final lyrics of the song. Uh, this is a little different because all five minutes of their <laughs> of of their just kind of free form ended up uh ended up being the track uh on the album that just defined their career after 30 years here here we are almost 30 years later still still talking about uh this band and that that that's what they're known for found a lot of interesting things researching the band i really meant what i said to him uh, that no one really sounds like Candlebox, you, especially going back to that time period. Uh, they didn't jump on the Seattle bandwagon. Uh, I, Kevin probably would add a hard time uh, singing low baritone like some of those guys and trying to em- emulate that sound. Uh, he had a, had a higher pitch voice. They had guitar solos. The song was five minutes. And and then again, I mentioned the bands that they toured with from Rush to Metallica to Aerosmith to Offspring. They, they weren't out there. Uh, pigeonholed as, as a Seattle act playing with all the grunge bands. It's like, where, where, where do you fit these guys in? I thought that was super interesting. And while you guys were talking about that, I was like, hey, I kind of relate to that in Punchline a little bit. Back in 2019, when there was touring, the tours that Punchline did, and <laughs> it's always kind of been this way for us, but we toured with Lesson Jake. We toured with the Spill Canvas, who's like an Eba band, and we toured with the Gin Blossoms, who are like a, you know, Jangle Pop band. I kind of related to that. It's like, you know, you don't really completely fit in any one genre, but I think that could be a positive thing in, in Candlebox's instance. You know, they they could do a Metallica tour and then tour with the Flaming Lips. And then they he toured with Rollins Band, I think he said, too. Rollins Band, and, and just the fact that, that you know, uh, Neil Peart from Rush was was studying the band enough to say, 
hey, you know those three songs there? You should probably put them in the middle of your set. I thought that was awesome, too, that that someone of that stature uh, cared enough about your band, thought your band was cool enough to to say, hey, why why don't you guys try this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like pretty cool, pretty cool humble brag there. Um, also, I thought it was really cool that Kevin said that he rarely writes the lyrics before he's, it sounded like before he's in the booth, basically, which that's wild to me to just go in there freestyling. I mean, maybe here and there, maybe a line. I know that we've been under the gun in the studio before and like, we got to think of a line here, but to come in completely blank and just go on raw emotion and, you know, like he said, recorded these vocals at four in the morning and it was about something that was really personal to him. And then what came out of him was a hit song. That's you, you called it a feel-good story during the episode. I think that's a pretty good feel-good story. Yeah, no, it, it's amazing. And when you go to research the lyrics, none of them are right online. I don't even know if the lyrics, if they put them in their original album, you can't really decipher. Even he said some of the things he was saying was really just stream of consciousness. It's what came out, that that raw emotion, because it was, it was such a heavy topic, which I want to get into in a moment. But Chris, something I did not mention in the episode, can't believe I left this out. I had it in huge parentheses at the, at the bottom of my notes here, but I think I know the answer. I don't I don't think we need Kevin to, to talk about this as much, but th- this might be the only song we've talked about on the show. There's no backing vocals or harmonies anywhere in this whole really? song. No. Wow. There's not one backing vocal or harmony. And I think that that lends itself to the, you know, it's it's such a personal lyric about what he's talking about. Of course, uh, Andrew Wood, uh, they called him Andy from Mother Love Bone. Uh, Mother Love Bone was uh, signed by Mercury in the late 80s. They put out their only major label album uh, in March of 1990 called Apple, uh, destined for success by all accounts from anybody that was part of that scene. Uh, they, they they may have been the first breakout, uh, if you want to call them grunge, alternative Seattle band, had Andrew uh, uh, not su- succumbed to uh, his addiction, uh, which happened, I believe, in June or July of 91. So four months after the album was released, he passed away. It's always so interesting when there's such a specific story behind this this wasn't a story about like addiction in general or whatever this is about a specific person i thought it was really cool he said he met him when he was 16 years old in a shoe store and and he talked to him and think about that man think about the effect that he could have on on both sides think about you being chris from less than jake if someone's young and in a band and you take that time to talk to them that they could then go on to be inspired by you all, all that time. Just you, you may have exchanged a few sentences with someone and inspired them to start a band at some point. Who knows? You know, it's like it can go so far. And and just the other way, too, if you're that kid, if you're that person who's inspired by someone who took the time to talk to you, I thought that was a really neat story. It, it was. And, and Andrew Wood was only 24 years old when he passed. Wow. I mean, it's just, he, he, he was, he was so young. And again, he's still cited as an influence uh, among, among so many musicians. And, uh, I thought that was really cool that Kevin shared that story. You could tell that, uh, you know, 31 years later, it, it still bothers him, you know, and it, it, it right. bothered him enough to, to write this song and which was interesting. He talked about how they uh, ended up, uh, re- writing this basically in mother love, Bones rehearsal space. He just felt this vibe, and as soon as uh, they the the I don't think it, I think it was the bass player uh, Barty. He was saying I think it, he was, came up with the bass line uh, mm-hmm. that ended up being the guitar part. Uh, that the lyrics just flowed out, and the song just happened. That's really interesting. And what I really love about doing this podcast, Chris, this has happened a few times now, is at the time this song came out, I feel like 
I was really like in my punk phase. And if it was on the radio, I wasn't interested in it. And I didn't have the Candlebox album or anything. But after this episode, after hearing Kevin talk about it, like I'm a fan of this song now. It's hard not to be. Yeah, that that's happened a lot on, on this show. That's, uh, you know, being able to dissect a song, looking at it in a different way that we're, we're looking at it, not looking at it. Oh, this song was on the radio or I was a young punk or that takes me back to this time. That wasn't a good time in my life. None of that matters. I'm just analyzing the song for what it is. What an interesting song. And again, to talk about those backing vocals that, and harmonies that aren't there. Uh, I don't think this song uh, lent, lent itself to that. I think it was such a personal lyric that it was just one person narrating this thing. And, and it, it's perfect as it is. Yeah, Chris, Far Behind doesn't have harmonies, but you know what does have a lot of harmony? What is that? You and I on the After Party podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We do. That's that's pure harmony, pure bliss. The After Party uh, podcast is a lot of fun. It's part of our supporting cast program where you can find out all about that at KristaMakes.com. You, too, can be a member and join and uh, get bonus episodes. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. We have a lot of fun talking about everything from TV theme songs to John Cougar Mellencamp. It doesn't matter. <laughs> we never know what we're going to talk about, but there's lots of great stuff. Hey, we've talked about some really cool Less Than Jake tours, Chris's experience on tours like uh, the Descendants tour or with Blink or all kind of cool Project Revolution tour, all kind of stuff like that. We've reflected on some cool things and we've analyzed some music and we've ranked our favorite things basically it's a lot of fun and things we don't do on the normal episode of chris makes a podcast that's right i even got to interview you chris and, and learn learn way, way way more about you than i than i ever uh thought i thought i could possibly know it was awesome yeah i never thought that chris from lesson jake was going to interview me and it happened on the after party where dreams come true <laughs> that's right i'm still doing live one-on-one zoom video consultations if you, a friend, someone in a band want me to produce a song with you, collaborate on a song with you, or answer any and all music business related questions, hit me up at chrisdemakes at gmail.com. Uh, I'd love to love to chat with you, help you out. Hell yeah, man. And Chris will not leave you far behind like this episode. That was <laughs> <laughs> that was a reference to this episode. <laughs> I will not. I will not. Speaking of far behind, I want to thank this week's guest, Kevin Martin, for sitting in with us. It was a lot of fun. We'll see you next time. Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? Ha! <laughs> 
How's that going? Did you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2020-d.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app.